Good morning. I want to welcome the, uh, the little third graders today who, uh, since they have no class during the second hour, get to sit in here. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? I had one little girl, Melanie Brunson. She came up. We've known Melanie since she was non-existent. And then when she came into existence, she came in and she was talking to me. She is so excited to be here today. I hope that she is when she leaves. <laughs> it's one thing to be excited to come to church. You be excited when you leave. Well, we're in the book of Revelation and have been for the last couple of weeks. We're looking at what Jesus is telling in these early chapters to the churches, seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern Turkey, uh, which would represent churches of all ages, uh, of all time periods. Each church is going to have characteristics that uh, they're in each and every church in the world today and have been, again, throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, and we'll see some things uh, in each one that, that may fit into our church, may fit in as a church, may fit in as individuals. And so there is, when we see Jesus commending the churches for what he loves, we also see him condemning the churches for what he hates. And so we can see what he loves, we can see that he sees everything, he loves many things, but he also wants us to weed out that which he hates. And he's very specific with what he hates. This church in Thyatira is the, first we saw what he, uh, the church in Ephesus, and then the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, and now this Thyatiran church. I'm not going to give you so much of the history of this particular city, um, because it doesn't necessarily fit into the preaching, but it's a wonderful study to look at uh, these ancient cities, what they were, when they came to be. Uh, we don't know when it was founded. We, we have no idea. Actually, we might have an idea. Probably during Paul's time in Ephesus, when we read in the book of Acts 19 and 20, where all of Asia, which would be Asia Minor, heard the word of God. Someone heard it from Paul, took it back to the city of Thyatira, preached the gospel. There were converts there. They started a church. It began to, to uh, exist as a church, as our church has, as other churches has. And of, over time, things come into the church because people come into the church. And when people come into the church, they bring their, I should say they, like I'm not one of us. We bring our idiosyncrasies, our problems, our sinfulness, and sometimes the church has to deal with that. In Thyatira, as we've seen in the other cities, pagan worship was everywhere. And it was prominent there. Emperor worship, living emperors and dead emperors, was prominent. If you were a Christian in these cities and you failed to offer emperor worship, you could not only be arrested, you could be killed. That's what Jesus told the, the church in Smyrna. He said, you're about to suffer over the course of 10 days. And he doesn't say, after 10 days, you're going to be set free, don't worry, just endure. He says, you're going to die at the end of it. At the end of it, you're going to suffer and you're going to die. Be faithful to the end. That's what it is. It's what being a Christian is about in many cases. It's just about being faithful to Christ our Lord. Thyatira wasn't about emperor worship. It was about the guilds. How many of you know what a guild is? G-U-I-L-D. Think of it in terms of, of a company, a club, even a fraternity or sorority. It's a group of people come together, except a guild in the old days was a, a place, it's like a labor union, where people worked in a specific trade. You might have been a metal worker, or a, uh, a leather worker, or someone who, who dyed clothing, purple. We meet a woman named Lydia in Luke chapter 16. She was a dyer of purple garments. She was wealthy. She was from Thyatira, so she was a member of the Dyers Guild, this group of people 
group of workers. So if you're in Thyatira and you're a leather worker or a bronze worker or a tanner or whatever it is you do, each one is like a sorority or fraternity. You might see the Greek letters above a sorority or fraternity and that's who we are, what we are. You know, you do, the, you do your sign or your symbol. Well, in the guilds, the sign of the symbol was the particular pagan god associated with that guild. And at the end of such a time, you go to work and you make, you, say you tan leather or you work with bronze. There was a particular god that was given the glory for your success. And at the end of the week, there would be a feast. Always for these guilds, a feast whereby the people that worked at that guild that made money and made their living would offer obeisance to their god. By the way, over the gods was the god named Apollo. Apollo is the son of God because his daddy is Zeus. Apollo, the sun god, S-U-N god, the god of the sun, the Egyptian god of the sun. That's Apollo. Under Apollo were these other pagan gods, each one associated with these guilds. So at the end of a week, you would have a feast, or there would be a feast where there would be all kinds of food, and the food was said to be given to the leather workers or the tanners as a result of your hard work. You should be happy and joyful and worshipful to that lowercase g god who gave you the ability to work with bronze or leather or whatever, whatever your guild was. You will now offer praise and glory and honor to this God. You will eat the meat that we have slain and dedicated to the God. And once it was over, there would be a orgiastic revelry of celebration, as it were, through these illicit, immoral practices. Now, if you're a Christian, you've come to know Christ. You live in Thyatira and you're a leather worker or you're a dyer uh, you work for the Dyers Guild. You, you dye garments or you're anything. You're faced with a, a healthy, difficult dilemma. Do I? Do I participate? Do I eat this meat that's clearly been sacrificed to a God? Offered to it? Now, the meat's not going to be any different, but it's associated with something that's not right, doesn't fit your new found faith in Christ. Do I eat it? Because to eat it is not just to eat and have a meal and I'm hungry for the day. Eating it is in honor of the gods. One thing to eat meat sacrificed to gods. It's another meat, other thing altogether to eat it because it's been sacrificed to the gods. And then to participate in the pagan revelry of a sexual nature that we couldn't repeat in such a, an, an auditorium. If you're a Christian, what do you do? Because if you don't, you face at the minimum persecution of those you work with and possibly kicked out, no way to earn a living, at which case you might say something like, well, God, don't you want me to earn a living? I have children at home. I have a wife at home that needs me to bring home the bacon so she can fry it up in the pan. You need me. My family needs me. Lord, you want me to do this, right? What would you do? We meet Lydia, not in Thyatira. She's in Macedonia, in Philippi. When she meets Paul, she has become, we, we learn that she is a worshiper of God, meaning she has been converted at least to Judaism as a worshiper of God. It's a wonderful little phrase given in Luke 16, 14, where Paul is preaching and it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's the gospel. God in his grace has to open our heart, open our mind, has to open us up to even receive His Word. 
We are so sinfully depraved, we need God to give us life. And God did so for this woman of Thyatira. Maybe she had moved out of Thyatira for the great persecution, was living in Philippi of Macedonia. Don't know. We just know that she was converted to Christ that day because of Paul's preaching. And she had been stuck in this pagan reverie of the guild society there in Thyatira. That's the backdrop of the church in Thyatira. Now, we make fun. I mean, when I was in college, we made fun of people in sororities and fraternities because we called it, you know, the the buy a friend or rent a friend uh, organization. Because if you couldn't pay your dues, you kicked out. And the people that were nice to you one day were not the next. You were their enemies if you didn't pay your dues. And so it was kind of the same way here. As long as you participate and do what those people want you to do, you're in with that guild. If you're not, not only are you kicked out, you can't make money. And what can you do? You're on the outside. If you're a Christian, that's the dilemma. So when Christ addresses this church, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, he says, And to the angel, as I've told you uh, each week, that the angel of each church is the pastor of each church. It's the messenger of each church. They've all uh, gotten the message from what John has given them through Jesus and through an angel that gave it to Jesus, that Jesus God the Father we saw gave it to God the Son. God the Son sent it to an angel. The angel sent it to John the Apostle. John the Apostle writes it and sends it to these seven churches through their pastors. This particular pastor of the church in Thyatira, write. Write this. And we know Jesus is speaking. He introduces himself. The Son of God. Right off the bat. In each church that we've seen, Jesus introduces himself in a different way. That pertains, no doubt, to the situation in which they were living in. Keep in mind that the, the God, lowercase g, over all of Thyatira was the God Apollo. The God Apollo, or Apollos, I should say. This God Apollos was the sun god, S-U-N, lowercase g-o-d. People looked to the sun and worshipped the sun. Jesus introduces himself as the son of God. You people in Thyatira, you worship the sun, S-U-N, God. Jesus is the son of God. Trumps it. The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. What's the sun God? S-U-N God. It's a a big ball of fire at the center of the solar system, right? Jesus' eyes are more flaming, more bright than the sun God you're worshiping in your guilds. In other words, the God of the universe is broken into Thyatira, trumping all their pagan gods and saying, hey, I've got a message for you. You've been listening to these. Listen to me. And that's what it is at church. When you come to church, maybe it's a time, at least among the other things that we get out of church, a church worship service, is that all week long we listen to lies, don't we? If you watch the news, you listen to the radio, you're listening to lies, mostly. And you find the liar you like the best, and you believe those lies. And at the end of it, you realize, I've just been lied to by everyone. Conservative, liberal, anyone in between, who's, who's telling the truth? And everyone's pointing their fingers back at each other going, you're lying. You're a liar. And everyone's a liar. We're all liars, and we're all calling each other liars. What a mess. So in other words, when you come to church on Sunday, not because I'm the only one that's going to tell you the truth, but because we look at God's Word, we're going to hear the truth. And so when Jesus breaks into Thyatira, He's saying, you have been worshiping the sun God. You are lied to. I'm the truth. And we know this about our Lord. He is the way, the truth. And the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus our Lord. 
He says, I'm the, the son of God. I have eyes like a flame of fire. That ought to frighten everyone. A God with a flame of fire, with, with eyes like a flame of fire, can see anything. I think the biggest problem with people who sin liberally and seemingly have no conscience about it have never been taught that God is everywhere at all times seeing everything. Don't you think? There are people that know about this God. They know about Jesus. They know about His sacrifice on the cross. We've told them. You've told them. Maybe they're your children or your neighbor. You know they know. I remember asking a guy one time, I said, so you're living with your girlfriend. You're just living in sin, huh? He goes, yeah, not the first time, won't be the last time. I was about 18, 17 at the time. And he was older than me, a cousin of mine whom I loved then and love now. But I remember thinking, you were baptized about 10 years ago. How can you say, yeah, do it now, do it again, not the first time, won't be the last time. I recognized then this man has no fear of God. He's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid that God sees everything he's doing. And that put the fear of God in me at that point. I thought I could never get away with that. Are you one of those people that you know, that you see all the people around you doing strange, strange things that you thought about maybe you might like to try, but you know you'd never get away with it? I knew that about me. As a kid, I knew what was right and wrong. I saw all my friends, even the ones I went to church with, getting away with it, and I thought, there's no way I'm getting away with that. I know in my heart of hearts that this is wrong behavior. I'll never get away with it. God will use me as an example for everyone else, so I won't do it. And I recognized through my life that that was a healthy fear of God that my mother and my dad put in me. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't understand. I don't think I fully understand it now that God was everywhere, followed me everywhere I went. So I began to pray, even at an early age. I, uh, my mom thought I was talking to myself. I said, no, nah, you said God is with me. And I remember asking him the question as a kid, you know, because we tell our kids that we should invite Jesus into our heart. Well, to a kid that, I mean, to, even to an, to an adult, I don't understand that. Invite God. You told me that God is bigger than the universe and he lives in my heart. I don't get that, Mom. Help me understand. And I remember the question, and she remembers it. Well, honey, he doesn't really actually live in you. But my heart, I, my understanding is the size of a fist. How is he in there? And then I remember hearing about open heart surgeries as a kid. Mom, if they were a Christian and they got a new heart transplant, do they need to receive Jesus again? I was confused as a kid. But you know, that's logical for a child. That's why you shouldn't tell your kids you invite him into your heart. There's not that in the Bible. We have faith in Jesus. We, we receive Christ. We believe in Christ. We trust Christ. Kids believe, kids understand that because that's actually orthodox from the Bible. But the point being is that people don't have this healthy fear that he actually does indwell us, that he is everywhere. And God has to break into our life to remind us. So when you come to church to hear truth, let me give you the truth right off the bat. God is here everywhere. He knows everything you're up to. He knows every scheme in your mind, everything you're thinking about doing, the dilemmas you're thinking about praying about. You're thinking about going to him in prayer. He already hears it. I'll give you a piece of advice. You don't need to pray about what you know is right and wrong. You just need to do that which is right. Amen? Why waste time praying? I need to pray about people have said before, I need to pray about whether I'm going to give. No, you don't. You don't need to pray about giving. You just need to give. Well, what's God going to say in your prayer? Well, I'm going I'm to offer you absolution from giving. 
You don't have to give any of your money, any of your time, any of your anything. I'm putting you off to the side. That's what we hope God will say. But he never says that. So why pray about it? Just do it. God breaks into this church where people are confused, and he calls himself the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. So if you're a bronze worker there, Jesus breaks into your guild and says, my feet, I could trample on you. My feet are burnished, a blazing fire. I could stomp you out like you take an ant between your two fingers. I am the God breaking into your city. Here's what I have to say. Verse 19, he starts off with, I know your deeds. And I've told you each time we see that, every week, just stop it, I know, I know. If God says, I know, that's a wonderful and comforting feeling, and it's also frightening to know that God knows. I know, here's what he commends, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So if Jesus walks among the churches, as we read in chapter 2, verse 1, he walks among them. He's everywhere. He's here. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is here. Same way he'll be at another uh, orthodox teaching church, even in our city or across the globe. He's omnipresent, always present. I know. He sees every church, their deeds as a collective whole and as individuals. I know your deeds. Actually, the, the Greek word is for works. I know your, your works, that which you're doing, and your love. And isn't love, isn't, isn't that the quintessential Christian trait? We would expect that if love was everything, then God would stop there and say, you got love. I'm good. I'll leave you guys alone. Love, in other words, this church, were, they were doing good things as individuals, as a collective whole. They had love for one another. Jesus, when asked what's the greatest commandment, he said what? Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Mind, soul, strength, heart, love him. And love your neighbors yourself. Two commandments. If we did those two commandments, I dare say there would not be a problem left in the world because we would love God, and if we're loving everybody around us, we're not hurting anybody. We're not lying to anyone. Everything is good. Send your children to play out in the streets. Your little children say, hey, I want to I walk to Houston. Let them. Because if we live in a society where no one would hurt another because we all love each other, they can walk down the street, highway, do whatever. Wouldn't that be great? They could be gone for three weeks. No one's going to hurt them. Everyone's going to care for them because we love each other. So they had this love. They had deeds. They had love. And he says in faith or faithfulness. Faith is one thing. Living out one's faith is faithfulness. These people have the fruit, the spiritual fruit that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Good church. Deeds, love, your faith and faithfulness, your service, serving one another, your perseverance, your keep on keeping on. When times are tough, people are making fun of you, you're losing your jobs, you're staying the path. Stay in the course. You're tough. You're strong. And... Contrary to what was going on in Ephesus, where they started off good and their love grew cold, cold love for each other results in fights, lack of evangelism. You stop loving the unbeliever. You stop teaching people that you love. Everything wanes. That's what was going on in Ephesus, but not here in, in uh, Thyatira. Their deeds of late are greater than at first. You're growing in your, 
your faith. You're growing in faith. Your faithfulness is producing greater works today than what you were doing five, ten years ago. Is that true for you? Is your faith today, if it was measured by what you do or by what you give, the amount of money you give, the amount of time you give, the amount of time you spend praying, is it better today than it was when you first came to Christ? Maybe only you can measure that, but know that God knows and God commends these. It's giving me a headache trying to read this. All right. Verse 20, but I have this against you. Let's just note there before I go any further that because Jesus brings up something against them in light of all that they're doing, even all their fruitful service, it means that good deeds, no matter how good they are, can't be heaped up and overcome the things that we're doing wrong. Ran into a guy one day, and, and we were waiting to get our hair cut. And, uh, you know, you a church-going guy? Yeah, oh yeah. He pointed down to a particular cowboy church where he goes. He said, we are busy. We do this, this, this. He's rattling off everything. And he took a deep breath, and he goes, oh, and they're wearing us out. That's great. Nothing about Christ. A lot of doing. Churches today, you might ask somebody, tell me about your church. Oh, we, we're, we're, we're sending money to this country and that country, and the more African nations you can mention, the better off you look. The more jungles where your money goes, it look better off you look. We do this and we do that. We build houses. Our youth went up to so-and-so, and, and we helped serve. We built houses up there, or, or so, there was flooding and wherever, and we went, our kids down, we went there, and, and we sent money to the poor. We drilled wells in Africa for people to have water. We do that. Those are good things, obviously. Sometimes they're used as, as just this resume of, Lord, look how good we are. As that guy was while we were waiting for a haircut. Oh, they're wearing us out. Those are good things. But to try to live your life how you want to live it and try to overcome your sin by doing a bunch of good works is not the ticket. And Jesus turns the tide here in verse 20 where he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants, that would be my professed Christians within the church. She leads them astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They're tolerating someone in their church that ought not be there. He calls her that woman Jezebel. Probably her name is not Jezebel. I mean, who's going to name their child Jezebel? That would just, that would be cruel to do to a baby. Um, it's, uh, this woman represents everything that's evil in the Old Testament. The Jezebel of the Old Testament was the wife of the, one of the worst kings ever, who is listed as no one did worse than Ahab. That was her husband. Uh, Ahab was an Israelite king, a king representing God and the promised land. A king. He wasn't any good, but what made him worse was his wife. Remember that, men. If you ain't no good, make sure you marry up. It can, it can only be helpful to you and for you. He married down. He was already bad and he married down. He married a Sidonian from Phoenicia. Her name was Jezebel. And she brought into Israel, into God's kingdom, the worship of Baal, B-A-A-L, 
and Asherah, his female counterpart. Now, these are made-up gods and goddesses, no doubt. Baal was thought to be the god of the heavens and of thunder, lightning, rain. And Baal would send down his rain when he and Asherah had, had relations. Baal and Asherah are only going to have relations, however, when the people of earth come together in the prostituted temples and mimic the act themselves. When that act is mimicked in this theology, the god and goddess above bring that act and they send their seed down to the earth, rain, which brings the seed out of the earth, crops, food, water. And so you pray to the god of Baal and Asherah and you mimic their lewd activities on earth so that they'll send their blessing. This is what this lovely chick brought to Israel, Jezebel. When Ahab one day decided he looked out at a certain person's land, he said, I want that land, but I can't get it because it doesn't belong to me. At least Ahab had that wherewithal. His wife said, what's wrong, dear? Well, I want Naboth's vineyard, but it's his and I can't have it. Don't worry, dear. I can just see him patting him on the back. I'll take care of it. And I can just see him going, you will? Don't worry, I'll take care of it. So she goes and has false charges trumped up against this this uh, innocent man named Naboth. She brings him up to trial. She has these people come up and say, he said this, he did this. They condemned him, put him to death. She goes back to her husband Ahab and says, the vineyard's yours, dear. Happy Father's Day. Something like that. A wicked, horrible, deceitful woman who brought the worship of pagan idols. Actually, she didn't bring it in. Solomon introduced it to Israel. They just made the problem worse. No wonder you don't meet people named Jezebel. I don't think this woman's name was that. They just called her that. Jesus is calling her that. If Jesus calls you Jezebel, it ain't a compliment. You're probably not about to get a commendation. But note this. You tolerate her. This woman that Jesus calls Jezebel, likening her to this woman who brought Baal and Asherah worship into Israel... You're tolerating her. You have all your good deeds, and you're putting up with her. She's not just a woman in the church. She calls herself a prophetess, meaning that she's telling everyone, I speak for God, because that's what a prophet does. Now, to be sure, prophetesses, a female prophet, they are not condemned in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. They have limitations. God has put limitations on what a female can do. They are not to teach or have authority over men. In fact, you can see she calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, a female is not to teach or have authority over a man. Not in the church, not in the home, ladies. If you have authority in your home over your husband, even if it's a joke, it's blasphemous. And if you're tolerating in your home, then consider this a condemning message something to repent of. This is what Jesus has against him. This is not Lance's opinion. You're tolerating the woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. And by the way, we see prophetesses in the Old Testament. Miriam, the sister of of, uh, Moses, is called a prophetess. No condemnation against her. We meet Huldah, the prophetess, in 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Kings, whom Josiah sent to get word from, she gives him the word of the Lord. We meet prophetesses in the New Testament. Anna was a prophetess. Luke chapter 2, at the birth of Jesus, we see Anna prophesying. What does it mean to prophesy? 
Give the word of God. Give the gospel. Philip had four daughters who prophesied. We don't know if they were good or bad. We just know that he had four daughters who prophesied. Paul tells women in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you're praying or prophesying, cover your head. Make sure the people know that you are under the headship of your husband who is under the headship of Christ. But there are limitations. This woman has gone outside of those limitations, and she is teaching and leading, having authority over God's bondservants and leading them astray. Note this, leading them astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, here's Jezebel's message. Remember how I told you about the guilds when we opened up today? She's telling Christians, guys, don't worry. You can participate in all that guild worship. God wants you to work and make a living. You can eat the meat sacrificed to idols. God is love. He doesn't care. You can participate in the lewd activities that follow. God doesn't care. He's with you. He loves you. Remember what Rob Bell wrote a few years ago? Love wins. Love does win, but Rob Bell's going to lose big time. Because his interpretation of God's love winning is that God is so in love with the world that he can't condemn anybody. That's strangely unbiblical. God will condemn all who have spurned his love for the love of themselves, doing what they choose to do. This woman is telling everyone, you can do whatever. God is with you. And so there were Christians in the church committing acts of immorality. By the way, the word immorality is the word porneia or pornuo. However, sometimes it's described as a, uh, a noun. Sometimes it's a verb. It's a very generalized word for all sexual sin. From looking at pornography to whatever. From accepting and leading, you know, we're, the month of June is the, I believe it's Gay Pride Month, is it not? Gay. It's called gay. It's a great word. It means happy, joyful. The homosexual community have, have stolen that word from the English vocabulary as they've tried to steal the, the, uh, the rainbow from the Bible that speaks of the Noahic covenant of God and his, the people of earth, that he won't destroy the earth again with with water, but will destroy it with fire. That's their emblem now. They've stolen it. Pride. People taking pride in their rebellion against God. What could be worse? We read about it at the end of the book of, at the end of chapter 1 of Romans, where Paul says people will reject the truth and believe a lie. They know what they should and shouldn't do. They choose what they shouldn't do. They receive that. God sends them this homosexual freedom that they revel in. Or I should say they choose that as part of their lie. God turns them over to their sin. And we've seen that. We've seen a sexual revolution in the 60s, homosexual revolution in the 80s, 90s. And what we see at the end of Romans 1 is this entire group of sins, this whole paragraph of sins that Paul lists. And then he says, people not only participate in it, but they applaud those who do. do are we not living in that day? Take pride in killing the unborn, calling it a part of the mother's body? It's a life. Let's take pride in it and march for our right to kill the human in us. Let's take pride and march 
and our right to rebel against what God has said is right. A man and a woman who are married. Pride. And in churches today, this is not only tolerated, it's applauded. Is this not applicable to our day and age? She's out there telling everybody it's okay. Jesus is saying, what you tolerate, I loathe. Oh, sure, you got your good works. All the good churches out there, I say good in in quotes, all the good churches that, that people see as good are out there doing all the good deeds we see in verse 19. Got good deeds, we love each other, we accept everybody, we're doing this, our money's going across the globe, we're doing that. Aren't we good? Patting ourselves on the back. But when you get down to their morality, you can do good things and live in immorality. That's what this church was doing. And they had a female prophetess pushing them to do it. I don't know if she had a woman's class, or she just taught women, or if it was a mixed class. She was apparently a woman of great authority. My guess is she was not like the bombastic, hateful Jezebel of the Old Testament. Probably a beautiful woman. Attracting people to herself, probably well-spoken, probably a wonderful teacher, as women are even in our society. We can teach. By golly, we should be able to preach. But the Bible doesn't change. God's Word doesn't change because God doesn't change. I talked to, yeah, I was at the table last night. I was at a wedding and a friend of mine at the church, he was talking about how he came out of Catholicism and he said, I just thought it strange that one day we couldn't eat meat on Fridays and the next day, it was okay to eat meat on Fridays. He said, I thought that was odd. He said, I thought it was odd how we had to dress this way one day, and all of a sudden, one day, we didn't. He said, that just seemed strange to me. I didn't think God changed like that. That's great little testimony. But that's what people want to hear. Hey, I need some sort of somebody to tell me that I can do what I want to do. Can you give me absolution for that? My dad used to play golf with a guy who would talk about, dad would say, so how come you get to play golf every Sunday when you're a member of such and such church? And his answer, oh, the rector gave me absolution so that I can play golf on Sundays. What a great rector. That's the pastor for an Episcopalian church. Uh, Absolution. And he asked, dad asked me later when I became a pastor, he said, do you have that power? I said, I don't know. I haven't come across that chapter in the Bible yet, but I'm going to look for it. Still hadn't found it. But that's what people want. They need a Jezebel to tell them, you can do whatever you want. Don't worry, God loves you. Note this, Jesus doesn't tolerate. And let me say something about toleration. We live in a day of toleration. You're loving if you tolerate. But toleration in and of itself, the very word implies that there is a foundation of belief. There is a foundation of truth somewhere that we must tolerate everyone who doesn't believe in that foundation. In other words, you've got people that are out there that have rejected Christ, they've rejected truth, but they're the ones out there telling everyone to tolerate everyone else, don't they? They tolerate everyone but Christians, we know that. But the point is, is even though they say they don't believe in any one truth, they believe in something which makes them have to tolerate people like you and me. So they have their own truth, and they're tolerating you and me. So when they point the finger at us saying, you're not tolerant, you're too judgmental, the very fact that you think you have to tolerate me means that you are judging me. Right? Is your head spinning yet? 
The very fact that you are taught to tolerate me or someone else means that you are judging them based upon what you think they really should be doing or believing. This church, probably filled with nice people, didn't want to deal with this woman. Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality, of her porneia, of her sexual sins. Jesus, no doubt, did not go to her in person. But as Jesus, he goes to people through the steps of church discipline. If someone's in sin in your church, according to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, someone in private goes to that person. You're doing this. This is a clear violation of the scriptural teaching. We're not going to people because they've got a quirk. Everybody's got quirks. But if it's a sin, you go to them. You confront them. If they listen to you, you've won your brother. The story is over. It's just a great story. If they don't listen, you take two, maybe three others, and you confront such a person. If they listen, the story's over. It's a great story. They repented. It's done. If they don't, you take theirs to the church, the body of believers. We went to you once with one person. We went to you twice with two or three people. You wouldn't listen. We now have to take you before the church and humiliate you for your sin and make it public. If they repent, the story is over. It's done. They repented. To God be the glory. But if they don't, if they fail to repent, they are kicked out of the church. They may come to church on a Sunday at the front door. The greeters are going to be said, you can't let this person in. You cannot come and mingle. It's part of your punishment is that you cannot fellowship with the people of God until you repent. That's what's in the Bible. No doubt Jesus had sent the overseers of the church to deal with this woman. That's why he says, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, but she didn't. So I say this, sin, as bad as it is, and it is, all sin is bad. There is something worse than sin. Failure to repent of it. Failure to repent of it. Jesus goes to her with her sin. Here's your sin. Deal with it. If we deal with it, to God be the glory. It's a wonderful story. It's part of our testimony. Look at God's grace. If we don't, well, here's what happens if we don't. Since she didn't, behold, verse 22, I will throw her on a bed. Literally, the, the Greek text says on a bed. Of sickness is implied. That's why it's in italics if you've got a New American Standard Bible. Behold. <laughs> that behold is in the text. It's in the Greek text. Behold. Listen to this. This may stun you. That's what it says. Or, or essentially what it's saying. Behold, I will throw her. Jesus doesn't say, I will gently lay her down and, and talk softly to her. Now, Jesse, you've been confronted. You need to do something about your sin, darling. No. That's not it at all. That's not the picture here. That's already happened. She said no to that. I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. So you've got the one she's leading into to sin. It's got her and the men that are actually participating in the immorality of the porneia that she is promoting. It's going to put them into great tribulation. That doesn't mean the great tribulation, which we think of in terms of the last seven years before Christ's return. It's just a really bad time. And I'm going to do it, Jesus said, unless they repent of her deeds. In other words, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. I'm going to throw her on the very bed that she's committing the immoral acts on. And those who participate with her 
unless they repent. So it doesn't matter what you've done, my friends. It doesn't matter how bad you think you've been over the course of your life. God overlooks all of that if you will repent of your sins. Admit what God already knows. Admit what you know in your soul of souls. I know what I've been doing is wrong. To repent is not just to admit it. That's confession. To repent is to turn away from it. That's what it means. It means to change your mind. I've been acting and living this way. I changed my mind. I'm no longer doing it. You ever met somebody like that? I changed my mind. I used to do this. I don't do that anymore. I used to drink to get drunk. That's the only reason I drink. I don't do that anymore. Now I just don't do that anymore. I used to commit acts of lewdness because I liked it. I don't do that anymore. I stopped doing that. That's a repentance of one's ways. And Jesus is saying, there's judgment unless you repent. Verse 23, it gets worse. And I will kill her children with pestilence. Literally, I will kill them with death. I don't believe he's talking about her, her physical offspring. I think he's talking about her followers. Seemed pretty, pretty treacherous to kill children. We don't, children are not always guilty of their parents' sins, and they're not responsible for their parents' sins. Children may suffer for their parents' sins, but not God getting them. I will kill her children, or that is her followers, with death. And note this, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts all the churches will know. When you read the Old Testament, if you read it, oftentimes you see in the prophets that God says, I'm going to do this, and then all will know that I am the Lord God. I'm going to do what I do so that all will know who I am. God is doing what he does to show people that he's in charge. And you and I are supposed to be the messengers out there telling everybody. When they say, where's God now? Where's God in the midst of this? God is allowing this to show you his grace. And then when they start griping about God's judgment coming down, why is God judging? He's just such a judgmental God. Well, previously you were asking where he was when he wasn't judging. Now you're judging God for judging. God wants us to know that he is graceful, full of grace and patience. And he's also the God who judges. And at a certain point, that grace is done for those who fail to repent. Judgment is upon us. I'll never forget, I've told you before about a woman I remember sitting with. I was a... Uh, Sam Houston State, we were in between classes, and we got to talking about God. I thought I'd met a sister in Christ, and I said something about, uh, I was reading prophets at the time, apparently, because I brought them up, and something about the judgment came up, and she said, oh, and she put her hand up, oh, I don't believe in judgment. Don't bring that, you know, got a little chip on her shoulder attitude, and I kind of laughed, you know, 20 years old going, what? I don't believe in judgment. Don't bring judgment to me. God's all about love. And I said, well, can you explain to me what happened on the cross? Seems to me that that is God's judgment on himself for our sin. What are you talking about, no judgment? What Bible are you reading? Not the Bible. All of this is a call to receive Christ, repent of your sins, so that we don't go through the judgment, so that our judgment is put upon the cross of Christ. For receiving Christ. And that's why God is doing this. So that all will know that I am He who does what? Who searches the minds. You know in the Greek text that word for minds is kidneys. Doesn't it drive you crazy to know that God is searching your kidneys? It's as if He's, I'm searching your kidneys and I've found many stones. 
It's translated mind. Kidneys are the innards, and the the Greeks would see that as, as part of the inner person. In other words, God knows all your feelings, your thoughts, everything, your emotions. He knows it. I search them, the minds and the hearts. And everyone will know when I judge these people. And I will give to each one according to your deeds. Underline that in your Bible. Our deeds. Deeds flow out of what we believe. If you believe that God is love, and He is, God is love. But if you believe that that love is a license to sin, well, you've, you've got bad theology. And if that's what you believe, then it means you'll do and act in any way you choose, any way you please. What you believe will affect how you act. Your deeds will flow out of what you believe. That's why we try to have orthodox theology at this Bible church. I want you to believe exactly what God has said. That's why I ask you, push you, plead with you to read God's Word. Read it year after year, cover to cover, three and a half chapters per day. If you begin January the 1st, you will finish on December 31st. If you read seven chapters a day, you will read it twice in a year. Think about that. And you do it every year for the rest of your life. Folks, I am 52 years old. I've been reading the Bible cover to cover multiple times since I was 22 years old. That's 30 years of reading the Bible over and over. And I can tell you this. Every time I read it, because I've grown spiritually, it says something different. Even though it says the same thing. I'm just more mature now. I can figure it out. How many of you tried to read a calculus book? You maybe you had an older brother or sister who was taking calculus when you were in the fifth grade. And you read that calculus book and you went, whoa. But by the time you were a junior or senior in high school, you took calculus and you go, piece of cake. I get it because I understand everything leading up to that. I understand what it means and how you think through these problems associated with calculus. Now, the rest of us just failed it all together. But either way, you get the point. Everything that leads up to that class is what we're learning. And that's what we're learning right now. We're learning along the way in what we read in the Bible. Next year when we read it again, we're going to say what everyone says. I read that last year. I didn't see it. It means something different to me. Or we say things like it came to life. It's always been life. We're the ones that came to life. We're maturing in our faith. That's what Jesus commended earlier. You're doing better today than you were in the past. Our deeds are in accordance with what we believe. If you're doing good deeds and you're mature in your faith, you're not doing them to be noticed by God. You're doing them to say thank you to God. But if you're immature in your faith, you're doing your deeds so that God will notice you and so that you might earn another place in heaven with the man upstairs, as you call them. There's no man upstairs. He ain't a man and he doesn't live upstairs. hate that phrase. Don't use it bad phrase. Verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. In other words, this woman is teaching, that's what Jesus says, he's teaching the deep things of Satan as they call them. Almost a sarcastic comment by Jesus. They call what she's teaching them the deep things of Satan. We don't know what this means. We can only surmise. The deep things. You see, you and I, I, I won't lump you in with me. Maybe you're not as simple as I am. I am simple enough and thick-headed enough to think that this book, the Bible, God's Word, is God's Word, and it's sufficient for all things. 
I'm dull enough to think that. I have listened to people, even people that call themselves Christians that say, yeah, the Bible's good, but we need to seek God in a deeper way. There are deeper things outside of the Bible and we need to be looking for it. They're called charismatics and Pentecostals usually. Looking for some esoteric experience that trumps simple print on page. Years ago when someone asked me to read The Shack when it first came out, you know, that wonderful book about the Trinity. They asked me to read it and I, and I read, I think I made it through 52 or 82 pages. I remember there was a two at the end of it. And I said, this is just trash. But it kept making fun of the simple, in its words, print on page. We believe beyond the simple print on page, belittling the Bible. We seek that which is deeper. And I thought, that's it. I slammed it. I was done with that. Made a few snide comments about it the next Sunday and lost a few people that were really enjoying the shack. If you're really enjoying the shack, folks, let me just be real kind about this. You need to read the Bible. If that thing hadn't stoked your fires yet and it's still in yourself, why? It's trash. And people have bought that stuff. Promote it. Have Bible studies on it. Which is strange because it doesn't fit the Bible at all. People tolerate it. Pastors tolerate it in their church. Deep things of Satan. That's what it is. One commentator said, you know, we know this because it happens in today's society, but there's a group of people that believe that if you will participate in everything you know is wrong. Did you catch that? Participate in everything you've been told is wrong. All the sexual revelry, all the stealing, all the behind-the-scenes jumbo mumbo-jumbo, whatever, all the things you know are wrong, if you'll participate in those, you will come to know the grace of God in a deeper way than you ever thought. People teach this. That way you can be forgiven to a greater extent and understand the grace of God. That particular commentator said that was probably the deep things of Satan. She was teaching everybody to go as low as you can to experience the greatest grace of God. Deep things of Satan beyond the Bible participating in whatever. Verse 24 again, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. In other words, your faith in Christ, I give you no other burden. Isn't that beautiful? God didn't say, now you need to go do this, 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 and this. If you believe in Christ and you have received him the way he has presented himself as the holy sacrifice the washing away of your sins, the freedom from yourself, and the desire to please him, not to gain favor with him, but simply to say, thank you for what he did. No other burden is placed on us. That's awesome. You don't need to get baptized. You don't need to give your money. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. But isn't that all we want to do after that? God, what can I do to serve you? Gentleman was here at the church one day. We had a church work day. I won't call his name. It was funny. It was really funny. And uh, he wanted to help. He wanted to give some money. And he said, hey, um, what are you doing with this? What are you going to do with that? I forgot what it was. It was something that needed to be done. I said, well, we've got some people coming in. Oh, he wanted to mulch the beds. And I said, well, we got a gentleman at the church. He mulches the beds. How much is it going to cost? I said, well, he won't let us pay us anything. Oh, he said. And there was about 50 people there here at the church that day. And he said, well, he saw the pizzas drove up. He goes, hey, let me pay for those. I said, well, Julie already paid for them, you know. Oh. So you could pick those weeds up there. I mean, those, are, those need to be picked. Okay. Well, he found a way to slip in $8,000 to 
to help pay for some of the improvements on that house over there. Sneaky devil. I love it. All he wanted to do was help. What can I do? And I kept putting him down. No, I can't do that. We don't need that. And he slipped it in. I'm going to do it. I love it. Don't you love that attitude? Oh, yeah, that Lance, he won't let me do anything. But I'm going to find a way to serve my church for what Christ has done for me. That is one not doing it out of obligation, but one who wants to serve their Lord for what he has done for them. No other obligation. None. Verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast, grip it tight until I come. You see, faith in Christ is not a matter of walking the aisle at an altar call like I did in a Baptist church. And every week to renew that faith, you've got to go down and rededicate yourself, you know, because just as I am will not stop playing. You're thinking, maybe the pastor just needs someone to rededicate their life or something so we can close this service. I closed many a service walking down with the rededication at the altar call. I did. I can't even count how many times I did that. <laughs> but, but he's saying that those who, who keep the faith, it's not about walking down the aisle and having the pastor say, look at what this young man did today. He's received Christ. That may be a conversion. But you'll know it's a real conversion if at the end of that kid's life, they're still walking with him. That's a conversion. Faithful to the end. Not someone who throws their hand in the air and says, I want to know Christ. That's salvation. You don't need to add anything to it. But true salvation endures to the end. That's what he says here. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. To the church in Smyrna, he said, till you die. Here it's till I come, be the second coming. He who overcomes, and note this, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him. So note this, it's two things. It's overcomers, those having to overcome the sin and the persecution in their lives. In Thyatira, it was, I might not be able to work. I might not be able to make money. Overcome the temptations to do what Jezebel is telling you you can do. Overcome it. And for those of you who have fallen, repent. Overcome and repent. To all those who overcome and repent, who keep my deeds until the end, not for a couple years, but to the end. Note this. Two things are given to us. There are two rewards coming in addition to the other churches. To him Don't miss this. This is what heaven is like. This is what the afterlife is. To him, I will give authority over the nations. Who's he talking about? Well, folks, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's a messianic psalm around 1000 BC. It's a psalm written about the coming Christ. And Christ came, and we know what Christ is going to do. He's going to judge when he comes back. The second coming is not about salvation, it's about judgment. And note this, Jesus himself, the one who has judgment, he's saying, to him I will give. Jesus is going to delegate his authority to his people. You and I as believers will be given the authority to judge the nations. You're not floating around in a cloud strumming a harp, folks. Nowhere in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus returns in the millennial kingdom, he says we will reign with him. R-E-I-G-N, reign. We will reign with Christ. As God delegated his authority at the creation, God created the heavens and the earth. He put man on the earth and he said, you rule over my creation. In the end, he gives and delegates that authority to his people, you and me. We will have this authority to judge the nations. Note this verse 27. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, 
Now, this is not something that, that we in our, our anger and vengeance ought to get too excited about, but it will be a part of it. You want to judge Adolf Hitler? You want to judge Joseph Stalin? You want to judge your next-door neighbor whom you don't like? That's not the motivation here. But the judgment, that, that thing that eludes us now, we wonder, God, why is evil being given reign over our society? Why are these evil people ruling us? Why are they winning? Don't ask that. The Bible says it's going to happen. The Bible also says that they will be judged, and you and I will judge them. They will be broken like a, like a clay pot is shattered with an iron rod. They are judged. It's delegated to us. And Jesus says this at the end of verse 20, 27, as I, as, also, as I also have received authority from my Father. God the Father gave God the Son that authority. God the Son delegates it to His people, and we judge. All those who have rejected Christ, all the Jezebels of the world, all the Rob Bells and false teachers of the world out there preaching their garbage that people eat up. Folks, I mean, the, the false teaching of our day, in addition to the health and wealth American gospel, is the critical race theory. That, that has become the false teaching of our day. That somehow we're all racists. And you know, here's the thing, we are, aren't we? Every one of us are. It's just one of the many sins related to our total depravity. We're racists, we're adulterers. Every time we hate another human being, we're a murderer. You say, I've never committed adultery. If you think it, you've committed it in your heart. Jesus said this. We were all liars, cheaters, thieves. I don't need to highlight one one sin, we've got all of them. All of which, by the way, are washed away by the blood of Christ. So I ask you, should we be out there highlighting one sin, whether it be homosexuality or critical race theory? Why aren't we highlighting people that live together before marriage and have sex before marriage? That's a sin too. Just as bad as thieving, lying. How much of that are you tolerating in yourself? And how much of that are we tolerating in the church? This is what Jesus condemns. The church cannot tolerate what Jesus will not. And if we think we should be tolerating it because that's what Jesus would do, didn't he just prove us wrong here? Jesus does not tolerate sin. He does not tolerate those who take his name and say, I'm a Christian and act this way. Let me add this. I know it's late in the day. I know you're thinking it's time to go, but it's not. Not yet. You see, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul highlights this man, this young man who's having relations with a stepmom. And the church is tolerating it in Corinth. And Paul says, this is something that not even the pagans tolerate, and you're putting up with it in the church. And he tells them, cast that boy out. And then he says, listen, I'm not telling you to go out, make sure you hear this. Paul says, I'm not telling you to go out and judge the world. People who don't know Christ are going to live like that left and right, and they do. That's their way of life. They don't know Christ. But he says, you are not to judge those outside the church. You are to judge those inside the church. And people who are living in blatant sin, like this young man was, Paul says, judge those within the church. Judge them. Cast them out. 
We can't use that phrase of we shall not judge. We are to judge. We do judge people who knowingly partake in sin, like Jezebel, who refuse to repent. They are to be judged. Judged out. And they're cast out for the purpose of restoring them. Not to hate them. It's all done in love. You say, well, that doesn't sound loving to me. It's called tough love. It's what we call it today. We want them to repent. And when they do, they come back in. And they're among us. Not only will Jesus give us the right to rule, gift number two in verse 28, now we'll give him the morning star. By the way, the morning star has been interpreted uh, in the Old Testament as Lucifer. Satan. That doesn't sound like a very good gift, does it? Here's what you get. You get Satan. That's morning star means Lucifer. Now, in chapter 22, verse 16, the morning star is Jesus. So it can't be both. The morning star is Jesus. We might look at it in a literal way as the star rising over the darkness and illuminating the darkness in Thyatira would have been of your persecution. I will end your persecution. Possibly that's what it means. But I just think it means Jesus. I will give you the morning star. Not only Jesus, but everything that comes with knowing Jesus. Everything that comes. You're... The dawn of the new day, the dawn of your eternity begins when you die in Christ. When you're faithful to the end, I will give you the morning star. The inheritance I promised you, it's yours in Christ. So let's just stop there. I mean, that's the end of it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear it? What you should have heard is that Christ commends fruitful behavior that flows from our faith. Christ condemns that which is contrary to our faith. He condemns churches that tolerate it in their midst. It's not my job, just my job, to not tolerate. It's all of our job, to hold one another accountable. When we're living in sin, we deal with each other. We love each other enough to say, brother, sister, this is a sin you need to repent. And if they listen, we've won our brother or sister in Christ, have we not? But the sin of sins is to tolerate it. Let's pray. Lord, may you be glorified at Harvest Bible Church. May you be glorified in every church that preaches the truth, your word, that exalts you. May you be glorified there. May you convict us of the sin in our own lives that we allow, that we think you wink at. May we be reminded that your eyes, like the burning sun, staring into our souls, you know everything about us. As individuals and as a collective whole, May we live our lives to please you, not to gain your favor. What other favor could we have? You've given us eternal life in Christ. May we do it to say thank you. May our lives rise before you as a living sacrifice of praise. This we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the Lord God Almighty bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 